0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who believes on the Son has eternal life. nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer to ask his guidance and direction upon our time in his word. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word through the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the apostles and prophets were guided so that without a conflict to their personality, without overriding their individual styles and backgrounds and education, God the Holy Spirit guaranteed that that which they wrote was free from error. So we know that we have an infallible, inerrant word that we can rely upon and that we can trust you explicitly with everything in our life. Father, you have solved the greatest problem we will ever face, and so you will solve every other problem that we face in life if we will follow your word and if we will execute the commands that we find there. Now, Father, as we continue our study in understanding the gospel message and that which we must believe in order to have eternal life, we pray that you will make these things clear to us and that we can have a clear and firm understanding of this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 10. We're looking at Romans 10, 9, and 10, and we are looking at the question of the role of the resurrection in the gospel message and in that which we must believe in order to have eternal life, or in Paul's terminology in Romans, in order to be justified. Now, we've been covering this particular passage in Romans chapter 10 for uh, four weeks now. This is the fourth lesson on that passage, and those of you who have been here for the last uh, three or four weeks understand that this is not an easily understood passage. It's not that it is always so complicated, but people have made it complicated because At first glance, based on the sort of cultural evangelical heritage that we have, our minds have been pre-programmed to think of words like saved as referring to justification or the initial rebirth into the Christian life called regeneration. So we think of whenever we read the word saved in the Bible that that means gaining eternal life, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life, what we also refer to as regeneration or justification. However, as I have pointed out in the last few weeks of our study, that is not uh, always the case. In fact, in the book of Romans, that is not the case at all. But it has led many people to misunderstand and misinterpret and misapply this particular passage. So let's first just look at at the passage in Romans uh, chapter 10, uh, verses 9 and 10. There we read that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation." Now, when we address a passage like this, a couple of questions ought to be occurring to us, which we've gone over the last few weeks, and I'll remind you of, especially those of you who are visitors. I almost feel sorry for those of you who are visitors this morning because to get to where we are, we've covered a lot of rather technical material, and I will remind you everyone of it as we review initially this morning, but we're going to hit it rather fast, and it may some of this may uh, come as a surprise to some of you as we... Uh, look at it. These questions that come up, two key questions that we ask in witnessing is, first of all, what should we communicate? What is it that you need to communicate to an unbeliever so that they can have enough of an understanding of what Christ did for them on the cross and what God has said is necessary for justification so that they can respond to that good news, and believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. So what do we need to communicate and, on the one hand? And second, what must be believed on the other hand? The gospel, as we've seen, is so simple that a three- or four- or five-year-old child can grasp the essence of the gospel and believe that Jesus died on the cross for them and that by trusting in him they have eternal life. What they are understanding, I believe, it may not be analyzed in a lot of theological complexity and depth, but they understand that they can't get to heaven on their own and that Jesus did something on the cross that makes it possible for them to get to heaven. And they may not have as clear and as profound an understanding of sin and spiritual death and death and all these other things, but they know they just can't get to heaven on their own. Jesus died on the cross, and he did something for them in dying on the cross that they can't do for themselves, and by trusting in Jesus alone, they can have eternal life. But questions have come up recently about what must we believe. Must we believe in the substitutionary death of Christ, and in what sense? Second, resurrection. Must we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's how we got into this subject. I looked at 1 Corinthians 15, which is often a, ver- a chapter that is used to support the notion that you have to have a clear, separate, distinct, analyzed understanding of the resurrection of Christ in order to be saved. Question is, can a three, four, five year old have that kind of an understanding of the resurrection as a separate and distinct proposition? Other than the fact that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. And then another issue that is often raised is must we believe in the deity of Christ? Now I have answered these by saying that yes, we have an understanding that Jesus did something for me that I can't do for myself. That's a pretty basic understanding of substitution. That's exhibited in the Old Testament. That's the focus of the Old Testament sacrifices. Resurrection isn't, not that it's not there, but it's not the focal point. That's not where the saving work of Christ was done. It was done on the cross, not in his victory over death. His deity is important because it goes to who he is, that he was qualified to go to the cross and die in our place. But a three-, four-, or five-year-old may not fully grasp the resurrection and the deity. I've also pointed out, so that those of you who are visitors can, can get a grasp of this, that if you're talking to some people coming from certain backgrounds who may be a little older, in their teens or 20s or 30s, and they've had their mind shaped by thinking from cults or from uh, atheistic uh, agnosticism or something of that kind, then these issues of who Jesus is as the Uh, divine, eternal, second person of the Trinity and his resurrection are important because you need to make sure that the Jesus they're believing in is the Jesus that died on the cross. If you are a Mormon and believe in Mormon theology, the Mormon Jesus is not the Jesus of the New Testament, despite the claims that they make. If you are a Jehovah's Witness... The Jesus you believe in is not the Jesus of the Bible, for you do not believe in an eternally divine Jesus. You believe in a creature who is elevated to deity. So the person you have on the cross is not the person the Gospel of John has on the cross. And if you have been, had your thinking front loaded by false teaching, then in a witnessing situation, that needs to be. Clarified. I've also made it clear in the past, as we talked about this, that there are those who sit in Sunday school classrooms, maybe at Mormon or maybe at uh, Roman Catholic or even liberal Methodist or Presbyterian, where the Sunday school teacher doesn't really believe in the deity of Jesus or in the resurrection of Jesus, but they use biblical terminology. And the naive five, six, seven-year-old child doesn't hear the theological uh, implications of their false theology, but they hear the clear message that Jesus died for them. And so it is possible that you have those who are in these groups that are not biblically correct. You do have people within those groups, children within those groups, that have, have not really heard what they were taught, but what they heard, was made clear by the Holy Spirit, and they have trusted in Christ for their salvation. As I pointed out in the last few weeks, as we look at any passage, especially a passage that has some difficulty with it, we have to make sure that we properly interpret uh, the Scriptures. And when we interpret the Bible, there are certain procedures that have to be followed. First of all, we have to observe the context. We have to make sure that the interpretation that we select is one that is consistent with the context. And I have pointed out that the immediate context of Romans chapter 10 is Romans 9 through 11. And the focal point there is on God's grace to corporate Israel, not individual Jews, but to the nation as a whole in light of those national promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Romans 9, 4, Paul says, to Israel belong the promises And the covenants. And throughout Romans 9 through 11, as we have seen, the focus is on God's future fulfillment of these promises to the nation Israel, to corporate Israel, to really the remnant, those who are within the uh, descent line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the physical descent line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So the context of Romans 9, through 11 is not talking about individual justification it is talking about the corporate deliverance of the nation and I pointed out that this is quite different from understanding the uh, individual justification of Jews within uh, the nation the corporate body of Israel next we Looked at the overall biblical context, which involves five passages to provide broad context. Deuteronomy 30, which is quoted in the verses preceding Romans 10:9, Romans 6, 7, and 8 are applications and paraphrases from Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 is a chapter that focuses on God's future restoration of Israel into the land. Paul is focusing on that. that God, he's answering the question, has God forgotten Israel? Has God given them up? And he is saying, no, that there will be a future time of restoration to the land where Israel realizes the fullness of God's promises. He develops that more fully in the 11th chapter. The second verse that I went to, spent some time on last week, is Matthew twelve twenty four thirty one 31 to 32, the so-called unforgivable sin. Many people think that this is a sin uh, of unbelief and that Jesus didn't die for that sin. I pointed out that this isn't an individual sin. It was the corporate national sin of Israel represented by the Pharisees as their leaders who rejected Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and assigned the source of his power to Satan rather than to God the Holy Spirit. And it is unforgivable not in an eternal sense, But it is unforgivable in a temporal sense, just as in 620 B.C. under good King Josiah, even though there was a great revival and return of the Jews to obedience to God, their sin under his father Manasseh and those preceding him had been so great that they had indeed crossed the Rubicon. They had crossed a boundary There was no return, and God was set on taking the nation out under divine discipline, his promise in Leviticus 26, the fifth cycle of discipline, that there would not be forgiveness for their sin of rejecting Christ in the age they were in or the age to come, which is the age in which we now find ourselves. But there is a future Forgiveness—that's spoken of in Romans eleven twenty-five. That they will be delivered when the deliverer comes out of Zion. Romans eleven twenty-five to twenty-seven, and God will take away their sins. This goes along with what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine, that He would uh, not come again until they—that is, the Jews—said, "Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord." This will take place at the second coming, or just prior to it, according to Joel 2.32, which is quoted in uh, Romans chapter 10, verses verse 13. That verse quotes Joel 2.32, they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So we have to understand the context of Joel 2.32. We will get into that specifically this morning. So we look at the... Context, And then we have to look at key words such as saved, confession, and righteousness. Saved in salvation, don't always talk about justification. Paul doesn't even use them as synonyms for justification in Romans. Confess and call, is this just a mental thing? That's how many people try to translate this. It's just a mental uh, synonym for belief. Or is it oral? Since twice he says confess with the mouth, We must understand this not to be a mental belief, but a physical, actual crying out with the voice toward God. And then righteousness has an important meaning here, as we shall see uh, in our study this morning. And finally, the theological use of the term resurrection. The resurrection is used theologically not in relation to our justification but it is the basis for understanding our new life in him. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that we were baptized into his death, and it is his resurrection which is the basis for our understanding of our newness of life, the spiritual life. So resurrection relates to new life in Christ, not uh, gaining that new life in terms of justification. So by way of review... First of all, Deuteronomy 30 is quoted in Romans 106 to 8, and it focuses on Israel's future restoration. Second, Matthew 12, 24, 31 to 32 is the unforgivable sin, refers to national discipline on Israel for rejecting the Messiah. It is not referring to unforgivable personal sin. Third, I renumbered and lost my enumeration there. Four should be three. Romans 11.25, when Christ returns, the curse of the fifth cycle of discipline will be removed. That's what that's talking about. Uh, Fourth, not five there as it's on the slide, but that should be point four. Matthew 23.39, Jesus said, For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this looks forward to that future time at the end of the tribulation when Israel as a nation reverses its decision to reject Jesus as Messiah. And as a nation of already justified believers, they will call on the Lord to deliver them from the assaulting armies of the Antichrist. And fifth, not six, as it says, but fifth, Joel 2.32 speaks of a future physical deliverance when the nation calls upon Jesus as their Messiah. So this is our conclusion. Romans ten, nine and ten is surrounded by passages that relate to the future physical deliverance of the remnant of Israel at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The all of the passages quoted from the Old Testament support this. Why would Paul take passages? that have nothing to do with individual justification and surround these two verses with those passages and then right in the middle of all of these citations from the Old Testament that look forward to to Israel's future deliverance or salvation from danger, why would Paul suddenly shift his focus to individual justification? It doesn't make sense. Therefore, we must conclude that perhaps the passage should be understood to refer to the future deliverance salvation of Israel and not personal justification. Okay, one more reminder. The Bible speaks of three stages or phases of salvation. We speak of phase one, justification. This takes place in a moment of time when a person believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sin. Once you believe that, at that instant, God does a number of things for you, including giving you new life in Christ. We call that regeneration or being born again. The development or growth of that spiritual uh, life, from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, is what we refer to as phase two, the spiritual life or spiritual growth. When we die... We are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and this is called glorification. Now, in the Bible, the word saved is used to refer to each of these three stages. So we speak of being saved from the penalty of sin. When we trust Jesus as Savior, we are saved from that penalty of eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, and we that can never be reversed. But the word saved is also used many times to refer to being saved from the power of sin in the Christian life. And this is Paul's focus in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And in the context of Romans, we also see that we are saved from the wrath of God. Wrath being understood as God's temporal discipline, his judgment in time. So Paul speaks of being saved from the wrath of of God in time. And then future, we are saved from the presence of sin when we are glorified and we have a resurrection body and there's no more sin nature. We're saved from the presence of sin. So what I'm saying is that the word saved in Romans 10, 9, and 10 speaks of phase two deliverance. Deliverance from the wrath of God for Israel in time for his discipline in time so we read if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be physically delivered from the wrath of God to come in time for with the heart one believes unto righteousness sounds like justification to me we'll see that it's not and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation now the passage begins with a Third class condition in the in the Greek. There are different ways to express an if idea in the Greek. And one of these is a third class condition. And this means that maybe you will and maybe you won't. A person can make a decision. Uh, Some will make a decision to confess with their mouth. Some will not make that decision. Uh, So it indicates a true hypothetical. Maybe they will. Maybe they will not. The word confess is a word that is not unfamiliar to us. It is the Greek word homologeo, meaning to admit or to acknowledge something, to confess as in a courtroom, to declare something to be true. And I believe that's the main idea here is because what happens at the end of the tribulation period, Israel as a nation comes together and they will corporately declare that Jesus is God, Lord. The word Lord, L-O-R-D, is a word that is used for deity. And see, at the first coming, the Jews rejected the deity of Jesus, his claims to be the Son of God and to be the Messiah. So they will openly declare at the second coming that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Lord Jesus and The fact of the resurrection from the dead is important because the nation Israel at that time in history will be dead. But God is going to bring them back as a nation. They will be virtually all but destroyed by the end of the tribulation. And it just as Jesus conquered individual death at the resurrection, so he is going to bring new life to the nation of Israel when he delivers them at the end of the tribulation period. Now, the word that people hone in on there, of course, is that word confess. What does that mean? Is that just a mental belief? Some people try to make it say that. Others try to make it mean that you have to have a public profession of faith. You not only believe in Jesus, but you have to walk the aisle, stand up in front of the congregation, give your testimony, and only then are you. Are you saved? But the word confess is used in the context here in Romans chapter 10 as a parallel to calling on the name of the Lord. Just skip down a little bit to verse 13 where we have our quote from Joel 2.32 and we read, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is parallel to Romans that says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So calling on the name of the Lord, which is an overt, physical, oral, audible act, is parallel to confessing. It is confessing with the mouth, which is clearly distinguished in context from believing in your heart, that is, in your inner soul, in your mind. We'll get into that a little more in just a second. But first we have to understand where all this is heading and that is in terms of this concept of sin and, I mean of saved and salvation. So we have to see what these words mean. What does it mean to be saved and what is salvation in the book of Romans? Now someone asked me a perceptive question a few weeks ago. They said, now, now Robbie, this looks, looks really technical. Would would those believers sitting in that church in Rome, when they received this epistle, would they understand that this was what Paul was talking about? And my response is, yes, they would. Because, see, you've been pre-programmed through your whole life being in all kinds of evangelical churches and in the context of American evangelical revivalism where the word saved is the synonym for justified. But they didn't have 2000 years of church history behind them they were reading this kind of language for the very first time and so the word saved wasn't set in the concrete of the this kind of a nuance of being justified and so when they read this being speakers of the original language they understood this in a way different from the way we do they didn't have all that baggage to attend them. They they could read it in a fresh way. Now, they might not have understood all of the nuances that we do. We've had 2,000 years of church history and argumentation and theological reflection to probe the depth of this language in ways that they did not. But they didn't understand it in a way that was contrary to this. They just might not have understood it as precisely and as much in depth as we do. The word "saved" in Romans is used eight times, and only one time in the past tense. That's in Romans eight twenty-four. The rest of the time, it's used in a future tense. Now, we would expect Paul to be talking to a group of believers and saying, "You have been saved" over and over again, like he does in, with his, uh, like he does over in Ephesians two eight nine. For we have been saved. There, he uses the word "saved" as a synonym for justification. But in Romans, he only uses it one time in the past tense, in Romans 8.24. And in 8.24, he's linking it to hope. And the word saved there is understood in the context of Romans 8 as being saved from the power of sin. Romans 6-8 through is talking about how you, now that you're a believer, can be saved from the power of sin and live unto God. And so in context, even though it's a past tense use of saved, it's not looking at justification. It's looking at their spiritual growth. Romans 5, 9, and 10 gives us our clearest understanding of this. In Romans 5, 9, Paul says, Much more than having now been justified, past tense, by his blood, we shall be saved, future tense, from wrath through him. Now, that sounds like eternal wrath, but it's not talking about eternal condemnation. The term wrath in Romans has to do with God's temporal punishment on mankind for rejecting him. So this is really talking about phase two deliverance from God's judgment on man in time for rejecting him. Paul goes on to say in Romans 5.10, "...for if when we were enemies..." We were, past tense, reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more, having been reconciled, past tense, we shall be saved by his life. See, right now you're sitting there, you're justified, you're reconciled, but you're not saved, according to this verse. None of us are saved, because saved here is talking about some the process in phase two. We are being saved, but it hasn't finished yet. We shall be saved by his life. That's his resurrection. Resurrection's the basis for living the spiritual life, not the foundation for justification. So these verses focus on phase two, not phase one. They focus on how we live that life. Now, romans nine twenty seven, ten thirteen, eleven fourteen, and eleven twenty six are the other uses of saved, the verb in Romans, and they either refer to phase two or, in a couple of cases, to the culmination of the process and future, uh, some sort of future deliverance. That's the word saved. Now we have the noun salvation. Salvation, the Greek word soteria, is used only five times in Romans. It's used in Romans one sixteen: for I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God is salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Gospel. and gospel used there? Boy, that sounds a lot like getting justified, doesn't it? Well, Paul is using the gospel to refer to all the doctrine that he's explaining in Romans, not just justification, which is only covered in chapters 3, 4, and 5. It's the broad gospel, the good news that includes not only how to uh, how to be justified, but also how to live as a justified person so that you have a future destiny of inheritance with Christ uh, on into eternity. So it is a full sense of the word gospel, not a narrow sense of purely giving the gospel so somebody can be justified. Romans 10:1 and 10 are in the passage we're talking about. That has to do with deliverance of Israel, as well as also 11:11. 11, 11. Now, 11:11 11, 11 is interesting because that applies to the Gentiles, but it's not just justification because the context of 11:11 11, 11 is the context that where Paul is saying God is now giving grace to the Gentiles for their salvation, not just their justification, but all the blessings that come with it in terms of their spiritual life for the purpose of creating a jealousy among Israel. Now, they're not going to be jealous just because a bunch of Gentiles are going to end up going to heaven. But when they see Gentiles growing to spiritual maturity and realizing the blessings in time that God has for them, that is designed to provoke the nation to jealousy, which will occur eventually. In the end times. So we have passages such as Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. That's either phase two in context, which is most likely because two verses later, it's contrasted with being delivered from the present time wrath of God. So it seems like phase two is the best way to understand that salvation. And then in Romans 13.11, Paul says, and do this fulfilling all those commandments he gives in Romans. Do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. See, that's not justification. We already have that. This is talking about how with each day we get closer and closer to our salvation, our deliverance, phase three, not a phase one concept. So we say these verses focus mostly on phase three or, or phase two rather, that should read phase two, or the cumulative process ending in phase three. And then finally, as I pointed out, Romans 11:11 11, 11 depicts the blessings of sanctification for the Gentiles in order to stir up jealousy among the nation Israel. Now the other thing we have to look at to understand this verse is its structure. It structured literarily what is called a chiasm. The word chiasm comes from the Greek letter that looks like an X. If you were a member of a fraternity you called it chi. If you are a Greek student, you were taught to pronounce it chi. So it is a chiasm or chiasmus as it was pronounced in the Latin. And this indicates a certain structure that resembles the one one side of an X. So you have an A, B, B, A pattern. This is what it would look like. Your A statements are parallel. The first statement of Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, is parallel to the last statement in Romans 10.10, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The last clause of verse 9 and first clause of verse 10 are the B statements. And the B statements are parallel to one another. The first B statement says, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in its reflection in B prime, we read, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Now, let's just focus on the B statement. That's the heart of this verse. In any chiasm, what's in the middle is the focal point of the author's thinking. Now, when you look at the B statement, the first part of it says, and believe in your heart. The location of belief is in the heart. That is a term used for the inner core of a person, their thinking. And you believe it with your mind, You believe in the core of your soul something. It is not a synonym for confession with the mouth. Confession with the mouth is in the A statement. So the B and B prime statements are the ones that are parallel, not the A and A prime statements. So we're talking about two different things. One is confession. The other is belief. The locus of belief is in your heart. Now, In the B statement, the first statement says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is not in the synonymous statement in B prime. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The reason that's included, as I said, is because if this is talking about the future deliverance of Israel, their being brought back to life and being reestablished as a nation is parallel to, ...to Jesus being raised from the dead. And that is how Paul uses resurrection theologically in 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 6, numerous other passages. It is his resurrection that is uh, the basis for understanding life after justification. But the other thing that's important to see here is the parallel between the last part of both of these statements... The first statement, the B statement, says you believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This is a post-salvation deliverance. Notice the B prime. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Now, in a synonymous construction... If the first part of the statement is restating the same thing as the second part of the statement, if the second part restates the first part in in a synonymous construction, then they've got to be talking about the same thing. The second half also has to be talking about the same thing. Our tendency is because Paul talked about righteousness back in chapters 3, 4, and 5 as imputed righteousness, is to think that now that he is some five chapters later, that he's still using righteousness in the same sense. But he's not. His quotations from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 30, were talking about their post-salvation obedience. Nowhere in this this passage is he talking about a uh, 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 post-imputed righteousness to get justified. He's talking about behavior after that. And so he says, "...with the heart one believes unto righteousness." The righteousness here is parallel to the phase two salvation in the previous B statement. So if being saved is phase two, then becoming righteous, being saved, uh, believing unto righteousness must also be understood as phase two. So this is our conclusion. Since saved is phase two, righteousness must also be phase two. This verse isn't talking about how to get justified or how to be regenerate or how to get to heaven. It's talking about Israel and their future deliverance as a righteous nation going into the millennial kingdom. Now let's go on and see the remainder of the chapter. The next verse, verse 11 says, For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now what we're going to see here is that Paul is going to quote several different passages from Isaiah in order to support his point that he is making related to Israel's future destiny. And so when he quotes this, he's quoting it from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. That's the Greek translation that was made of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the word that is used in the in the Septuagint is a little different from the word that was used in the uh, Hebrew of uh, this particular verse. Now the verse that he quotes here is Isaiah twenty eight sixteen. Isaiah twenty eight sixteen which reads Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold I lay in Zion a stone For a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, whoever believes will not act hastily. That's how it read in the the original. However, the Septuagint translated, it shall not be put to shame. And when God the Holy Spirit, in the process of inspiration, has the writers of the New Testament quote from the Old Testament, even if there's a difference using the Septuagint, because God the Holy Spirit is inspiring them to use that, then even though there is a difference in the wording, uh, the other word that is used is still a true and accurate statement. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. In other words, when Israel turns to accept Christ as Savior at the end of the tribulation period, they will not be embarrassed. They will, in fact, be delivered. And the focal point of Isaiah 28:16 is on Jesus as that chief cornerstone, the Messiah that is laid for Israel. This is the issue they rejected him as Messiah at the first coming, but they will call upon him, at, and that will precede his second coming. This is seen in the uh, in verse 13. Between the two. Paul sandwiches in this statement, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. What he is saying is that Jews have to recognize that faith is the issue just as Gentiles do. It's not like the Pharisees taught you that it's works. It is not works. It is dependence upon God. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. We have to look at it. He's not saying the Greeks do it just like the Jews do, the Gentiles do it like the Jews do. He's saying, look, you Jews, you need to do it the same way the Gentiles do. It's all based on belief in Jesus as the Messiah. And then he explains that further in verse 13 by saying, for, and then he quotes from Joel 2.32, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, what's interesting as we go through this passage is that some may say, well, what exactly is the uh, nuance of the, some of these verbs in terms of person? Back in verse uh, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that we have a second person singular. Well, he's talking to individuals. Isn't that what we have there? Well, we have something a little funny that goes on in language sometimes. When you're talking to a group, that group is seen as a collective whole, and therefore we refer to a group with a singular pronoun. Sometimes we have a nonspecific term that is used, and it's singular, but we refer to it in English with a plural pronoun. So if a person says this, then they have done the wrong thing. See, now, some of you with an English background think I just committed some atrocious error, but you're wrong, and I'm right. <laughs> See, if a person does X, that term "a person is singular. But, and if I say if a person does something, they have done the wrong thing, I've used a third-person plural pronoun, they, to refer to a first-person singular referent. And that is considered egregious by some snobby English lovers. However, the Word of God does it in both Hebrew and Greek. And there's a great debate among intellectuals regarding language about this, but it's true in many languages where you have a singular noun used and then it's referred to by a nonspecific plural. So it goes back and forth. The point that I am making here is that when we get into verse 13, we have this phrase, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, which can have a singular emphasis But when we get to verse 14, we'll read, How then shall they, plural, call upon, call on him in whom they have not believed? And my argument is that what's in view in all these passages is the corporate entity of Israel. So sometimes they're referred to with a singular pronoun and sometimes as a plural pronoun, both of which are correct. Now, verse 13, we have whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is a direct quote from Joel 2.32 in the Old Testament. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I don't have time to go into the context of Joel 2 uh, in the verses preceding this or the verses immediately after it, but I will teach what they say. This is referring to the time of the day of the Lord, which comes at the end of the tribulation period. This is when Israel has there as a nation. There are few left. They are the remnant. Uh, notice that in the last part of Joel 2.32, it says, Among the remnant whom the Lord calls, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. The word there translated save is not the Hebrew word yasha, from which we get Joshua and Yeshua for Jesus. It is a different word in the Greek. It is the word, I mean, in the Hebrew, excuse me, it is the word melet, which means to be delivered from a physical crisis. And so Israel's going to have their back, the remnant's going to have their back up against the wall, literally. At the end of the tribulation, Israel will be on the cusp of complete annihilation and destruction by the armies of the Antichrist. And it is then and only then that they turn and they call on the name of the Lord. In fulfillment of Matthew 23, I will not come again until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they call upon the name of the Lord. This comes towards the end of the campaign of Armageddon. So, We covered this on Tuesday night a couple of weeks ago. You can see the full lesson online. But I want to remind you that there are eight stages in the final campaign of Armageddon. Armageddon is not a singular battle. It is a complex of battles. It is a military campaign. And the eight stages are, first of all, the armies of the Antichrist will gather in the valley of Har-Megiddo, means the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is a tell. It reflects about at least 27 layers of civilization overlooking the valley of Esdralon uh, in the, uh, Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And it is a place where these, the staging area where, uh, the equipment, the supplies for the armies of the Antichrist will be brought in from the port of Haifa, which lies at one end of the valley in order to supply the armies Uh, during this campaign. Uh, As they are doing that, there will be an instantaneous destruction of Babylon in the east that will surprise the Antichrist. Then he will take his armies and he will attack Jerusalem and he will send part of his army after the Jews who have fled following Jesus' Uh, warnings that when you see these signs, flee into the hills and those who fled south into the hills across Judea to an area we call Petra or Basra over in what was historically the region of Edom. And Basra and Edom are both mentioned in prophetic passages as we, we will see. There as the remnants of Israel gathered together, made up of individuals who have already believed Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They they wouldn't have followed his commands to flee if they hadn't believed on him. So individually, they're already justified. And this group of already justified Jews will find, uh, will escape and find a place of refuge across the Jordan in the area around Petra or Basra where God will protect them during the second half of the tribulation period. There they will finally, as a group, corporately call upon the name of uh, Jesus as the Messiah to come and deliver them, and Jesus will return, and then he will lead them in a march of triumph, defeating the armies of the Antichrist on his way back to Jerusalem, where the fighting will end. He will have a victory ascent upon the Mount of Olives. Now, what we want to look at is just those center points, 4, 5, and 6. By point number 4, the Antichrist will have marched on Jerusalem, and he will send a contingent of his army to Petra, which is in the lower part of the slide to the southeast of the Dead Sea in the current Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. This is an area that is out in some of the most barren country you can possibly imagine. This is a topographical uh, map and satellite view that gives you some idea. Uh, This area is all desert. It is extremely rugged territory. A couple of pictures illustrate this. This is from the top of the Herodium, the burial site of Herod the Great. Looking across to the east and a little patch of blue that you see Right about there is the Dead Sea, and off in the hazy distance you see some vague mountains there. Those are across the Jordan over in uh, Jordan. This is rugged territory as they flee down across Judea, across the desert, and over into uh, Jordan. You can see how difficult this is, but once you're safely ensconced in these mountains, it would be very difficult and, to come in and to get you. And it is there that they will call upon the name of the Lord from the area we now know as Petra. And we have various passages such as Jeremiah 49, 13 through 14 that emphasizes this, that the Lord says, I've sworn by myself that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse. A bloody, bloody battle will take place there among the uh, ancient ruins of the Nabataean uh, kingdom. As you see on this particular map, Bosra is located down here to the southeast of the Dead Sea. Once Jesus delivers them, he will lead a victory march across the desert up through uh, Judea with the tribe of Judah and the vanguard so they will be there pressured attacked by the tribes of the by the armies of the Antichrist Israel will cry out for help as Jesus says in Matthew 23 39 they will call upon the name of the Lord Romans eleven twenty six 26 says that the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when i take away their sins this isn't the removal of sin which occurred at the cross this is the removal of the divine discipline of that unforgivable sin matthew chapter 12 when jesus said that they would not be forgiven in that generation or or in that age or the age to come and this is when they are going to be redeemed and saved as a nation and the new covenant becomes uh, activated Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. doesn't say they'll believe on him because they're already justified. This is when they realize the consequences of their actions in rejecting the Messiah and they grieve and mourn over the one whom they have pierced and they will weep bitterly over him. And it will come about at this time that God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. This is the enacting of the new covenant with Israel. This is Joel two twenty-eight and 29, just preceding our quote, which says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be physically delivered. And, he, and that passage says in Joel two thirty to 32, went too fast, Joel 2, 30-32, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. That's the battle. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. And so Jesus will return at the second coming, and he will deliver uh, Israel. And this will bring about the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist, as he leads that victory march into Jerusalem. And then Isaiah 63 prophesies this. Who is this who comes from Edom? See, that's where Basra is, with garments of glowing colors from Basra. And then at the end he says, I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. He comes with a robe that is drenched in the blood of his enemies. And it is then that he meets with the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat, separating the sheep from the goats and bringing about the final establishment of the millennial kingdom of Israel. And there's a picture of the valley, the Kidron Valley, between the Mount of Olives on the left and the Temple Mount on the right. You can see over here the present Dome of the Rock. But this valley here is thought to be the Valley of Jehoshaphat, where this will take place, Zechariah fourteen three through four talks about this. When the he stands on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives splits in two. So in Romans ten fourteen, Paul says, How then shall they that is Israel in context call on Him in whom they have not believed? See, they've already believed in Him before they get to Basra. How shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And we see the order: preach. Then hear, then believe. And then they call. Believing precedes that audible calling upon the Lord. And then the quote from the passage we read before class in Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. It's that peace that comes to Israel at the end of the tribulation. Bring the tidings of good things. See, this is a passage in Isaiah 52 that focuses on that second coming and establishment of the kingdom. But there are many that have not believed. That's the purpose of Romans 10.16, which is a quote from Isaiah 53.1. Some do not believe, and they will not be of true Israel. And then Paul concludes in 10.17, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, the spoken word of God. We announce the good tidings of Jesus Christ. Then verse 18, but I say, have they not heard See, some will say, well, the Jews really didn't hear. And he responds by saying, yes, their sound has gone out to all the earth. The gospel is made clear so that they are without excuse. Psalm 19, verse 4. And then this he quotes from Moses. But I I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. That foreshadows his argument in Romans Eleven. Again, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, a restoration passage. So, let's uh, go to a conclusion here to wrap this up so we understand how this closes out. First point, the focus of the gospel presentation for us must be on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. Second thing I'm saying is We have to recognize that Jesus is able to pay the penalty for our sins because of who he is. He is the risen, divine Son of God, so that the deity and resurrection of Jesus Christ relate to who he is. So resurrection is important, but it is not the heart of the gospel. Point four, Jesus should be presented as the risen Son of God who is fully divine and equal to the father and able therefore to go to the cross and die for our sins and then finally no passage asserts belief in the resurrection as a distinct separate analyzed proposition however when jesus is presented as the risen son of god then the and the one who died then the one who died is qualified to pay for our sin penalty so when we present jesus as the risen son of god and people believe on him they are believing on the one we presented. So we present him as who he is. When you look at Acts, almost in every single presentation of the gospel, there is, an, there is a presentation of Jesus as the one whom you crucified and who God raised from the dead, that he is the Son of God. John writes the Gospel of John that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't stop there. He's the Son of God. So we present him as the risen divine savior but the focal point of the gospel is that he died for your sins so that the sins are dealt with they're paid for you have eternal life because of what he did on the cross and nothing else saves us let's with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for this opportunity to go through these passages and to come to a clear understanding of what we must communicate when we witness and what must be believed in order to be saved Help us to understand these passages that are so often misused and abused. Yet nevertheless, in your grace, you have been pleased to allow many people to be justified, even though passages that, they, that were used in witnessing were somewhat out of context. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty in full. You have forgiveness. The issue now is, are you going to believe in him? Those who believe in him are not condemned, but the ones who believe not are condemned already. They're born spiritually dead and unrighteous. Because of that, there is an eternal punishment. But you can make a difference right now by trusting in Jesus. And when you trust in him alone, you're justified, you're regenerated, and this can never be taken from you. Father, challenge the rest of us with a desire to make the gospel clear to those around us who are unsaved, those who need to hear the gospel, those who need to believe that Jesus died for them, and that we may be willing to take the time to explain these things clearly to them, that God the Holy Spirit can use it to bring them to eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.